Welcome back to Crossing the Jordan, everyone. I pray that the last episode of this series on the biblical foundation of the papacy was extremely fruitful and eye-opening to everybody. And now I want to dive into some of the early church fathers' writings and papal succession. But before I do that, I actually want to um, go back to scripture a little bit more and also provide a little bit more context to a few, thi- few things that were mentioned in that last episode. So uh, elsewhere in scripture, last time we, we left off from the Gospels and then going through the book of Acts where it's clearly laid out that there is this primacy to Peter as the chief apostle. And then we walked through the first council of Jerusalem where Peter stood up in front of everybody and dogmatically taught that the Gentile Christians did not have to be circumcised or take on the Mosaic law in order to convert to Christianity. So, uh, and after that, that was a dogma of the faith. And then they released those letters to the churches and everybody was satisfied because everybody knew that Peter was the chief apostle. But Elsewhere in scripture as well, Peter uh, also reminds his readers that he is an apostle of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter 1.1, and as such has authority to preach and teach in the name of the Lord, and uh, according to Luke 10.16, where Jesus says, He who hears you hears me, and he who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects him who has sent me. And then, uh, the very f- so the very fact that Peter sent his epistles to instruct and guide the church shows that Peter knew he possessed an authority above that of others. Um, and then, uh, referring back to the Old Covenant, rabbis, all the way up until the day of Jesus, they would trace their teaching back to Moses himself. So they would say, well, I learned my teaching from Rabbi so-and-so, who learned it from Rabbi so-and-so, who learned it all the way back to Moses himself, because that was where the law was given on Mount Sinai from God to Moses. So that was them tracing back their authority to Moses himself to show that they had authority in what they were teaching. And so it is with Jesus as he established and he fulfilled the the Davidic kingdom established by Jesus, the Son of God himself. And today we can trace back the Pope and the bishops all the way back to the uh, uh, Peter and the apostles established by Jesus Christ himself. And so, and then when you look into the early Christian writings in the early centuries of the church, you don't see any examples of Christians denying Peter's primacy or the succession of other bishops of Rome to the Petrine office. When I say other bishops of Rome, I refer to people that have succeeded Peter as the Pope. So you don't see anybody ever denying anyone's authority. And so papal succession is similar to apostolic succession, but also different in that most popes down through the history of the church were ordained bishops before being elected to succeed Peter in his papal office. Today and over the past 700 years plus, popes are selected through a process known as as the conclave. The term is a Latin noun meaning a room that can be locked. Papal successors are elected in such a room, today it's the Sistine Chapel, usually by and from among the highest ranking bishops of the church. And so once somebody is elected, um, now they sit in the place on the chair of Peter. And I also wanted to touch on a little bit more on infallibility. So infallibility is given to the Pope when he proclaims a definitive act, a dogma pertaining to faith or morals. So we'll uh, mention this again in a second, but remember infallibility is a teaching is not infallible unless the, the church specifically says 
this teaching is infallible. And sometimes an entire document, maybe a single sentence in there is referred to as infallible. So there might be this long uh, encyclical or a letter that has an, an infallible teaching in it, but the entire thing itself is not infallible. There might be a lot of writing in there to further explain or to further elaborate or clarify the teaching, the infallibility itself, which could be a single t- sentence in there, and it has to say, this is infallible. So a teaching is a dogma if two things are met. If it binds the faithful to believe it with the assent or adherence of faith, and it comes from divine revelation. So all dogmas are definitive and infallible, but not all definitive and infallible teachings are dogmas. A teaching is not infallible unless the church explicitly says it is infallible. A teaching can be defined as an infallible dogma by the Pope speaking in his capacity as the successor of St. Peter, such as when Pope Pius XII defined the dogmas of Mary's bodily assumption. It can also be defined by the ordinary and universal teaching authority of the church, such as the universal witness in ecclesial documents that killing innocent human beings is wrong, or it can be defined through the canons of an ecumenical council. For example, the teachings that Christ's body, blood, soul, and divinity are truly present in the Eucharist is a dogma of the faith that was divinely revealed to the church and it's been believed since the very beginning of the church 2,000 years ago. It is well attested to in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. The dogma was defined at the Council of Trent only because such an act was necessary to counter heresies related to the Eucharist that emerged during the Protestant Revolution. And so this is also just a reminder, um, and that's one example, but even the doctrine of uh, the Trinity, that was not formally defined until the 4th century by the church because the divinity of Jesus was being attacked and the the teaching of the Trinity was being attacked. So then the church came together with the bishops in union with the Pope and formally declared and defined and had a dogma teaching that's an infallible teaching on uh, the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit revealed uh, one God and three persons. And so all that is highlighting there is that teachings from the church don't usually become definitive or defined and uh, a dogma is not taught unless there's like an attack on the faith, right? So just as we saw in the Eucharist and both, uh, both in the Eucharist and the Trinity. And uh, no pope has ever authoritatively contradicted an earlier pope's infallible statement on a matter of faith and morals. Popes have, however, contradicted or changed non-infallible, non-doctrinal decrees of previous popes. And so that's a very clear distinction because no pope has ever changed an infallible teaching of the church because... One, Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit would guide us, guide the church into all truth, and he gave Peter the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever he binds on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever he looses on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he promised this uh, this infallible um, charism of the pa- the patron office. And then... Uh, and then also I wanted to go to scripture where in Galatians uh, two in Galatians chapter two, there's a time in here where it seems like Paul is rebuking or um, almost like belittling Peter and kind of undermining this chief apostle whole Pope thing we've been talking about for the last episode or so. So if you were to go to um, 
Galatians chapter 2, starting at verse 11, I'll just read really quick. It says, But when Cephas came, Cephas is referring to Peter. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he ate with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. So the circumcision party were those who said that Christians needed to be circumcised in order to be Christians. So they needed to follow the Mosaic law before becoming Christians. But with him, the rest of the Jews acted insincerely so that even Barnabas was carried away by their insincerity. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so let's dive into that entire piece of scripture because it sounds like Paul is belittling uh, St. Peter. However, if we look into the entire context, which is always extremely important to do, um, he is actually using Peter as an example precisely because Peter was the chief apostle. So Paul here, he had a personal rela- he had a personal relationship with the Galatians and he converted many of them himself if you read in uh, chapter 4. He felt it is a personal betrayal when some of his converts abandoned his gospel of justification through faith in Jesus Christ and began embracing a false gospel that said Christians must embrace the, the Mosaic law to be saved. As a result, he wrote to them almost in a uh, in a rage of anger, right? So you see this even right from the get-go. So in a lot of his writings, especially like in Romans, he's usually um, encouraging or upbuilding or he is so proud of the Christian community that he's writing to because he hears great things from them. And that's very, uh, on the other side of that, in Galatians, he he starts his his letter in 1.6 that says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who, who called you in the grace of Christ. So later, he refers to the Galatians as mindless in uh, 3.1. And the same heresy appeared in the capital of the empire, but since Paul did not have the same kind of relationship with the Romans, whom he had not visited yet, according to Romans 1.8-15, he took a winsome tone, tone instead. So particularly stinging to Paul was the charge by some in Galatia that his gospel of justification by faith in Christ was a watered-down version of the true gospel which required the observance of the Mosaic law. So the entire thing was people were saying that Paul had watered down his gospel to please men by not making strong demands of them. And so Paul responded to this uh, in 1 Galatians 9 through 10. He says this, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you received, let him be anathema, which basically means accursed. Uh, Am I now seeking the favor of men or of God, or am I trying to please men? If I were still pleasing men, I should not be a servant of Christ. So uh, he then turned to a defense of his gospel to show that it was not of human origin in 111, but was revealed to him by God in 112. Paul pointed out that he, of all people, was extremely on fire for the Mosaic law before his conversion to Jesus in 1, uh, 13 through 14 in Galatians. And he also said that when Christ appeared to him in Acts, back in Acts 9, he did not confer with other men, but the, con- the content of the gospel, and, uh, according to Galatians 1, 15 through 16. He did not even visit with the other apostles, according to 1, 17. Only after three years did Paul go up to Jerusalem and spend a, a night with Peter, according to Galatians 1, 18 through 24. While he was there, he happened to see James the Just, but nobody else. 
Paul even assured his readers that he was not lying about this, for they might have thought, how could one go to Jerusalem and not try to meet an apostle as one could? But Paul, but Paul wasn't interested in meeting the others, only Peter, whom he went to see. And why would he want to go see Peter? Because Peter was the one to see. He was the head and chief apostle, so Paul wanted to confer with him. So 14 years goes by and after his, after his conversion, and Paul makes another visit in which he did see the other apostles, and according to Galatians 2, 1-10. through 10, He stressed that he did not uh, have wanted to show favor with others, and saying that the reputations of the most important apostles did not matter to him, for God judges impartially. But Paul did have a regard for the teaching of the Jerusalem apostles, who also had instructed by who was instructed by Christ. His gospel had to agree with theirs. So he explained to them privately, lest somehow I should be running or had run in vain. He thus submitted his gospel to the Jerusalem apostles. And so the fact that God judges impartially does not do away with offices in the church, such as the papacy or the uh, bishops. It means that God will judge the office holders impartially. Paul singled out Peter as one who had a special office above James and John as the one God entrusted with leading the mission to the Jews, according to Galatians 2, 7 through 8. This made Peter a perfect case to show the transcendent importance of the gospel. It is more important than any person, so Paul used Peter, the most important person in the early church, to show this. He recounted an incident in which Peter visited the, ch- the church in Antioch, back in uh, chapter or chapter 2, verse 11 through 17. Peter had been the one who first admitted Gentiles to the church back, back in Acts 10. That was all by uh, Peter, though doing so subjugated, subjected him to criticism, according to Acts 11. When Peter visited Antioch, he kept his usual practice of holding uh, fellowship with Gentiles, but the Gentile Christians, but drew back when some Jewish Christians arrived, according to Galatians 2.12. So Paul rebuked Peter, since this action could be misunderstood as implying that Jews should not sit at table with Gentiles and that the Mosaic law is binding. So also, uh, if you look back in Acts 21, 17-33, we see that Paul himself later did something similar to what he is saying Peter did here, which ultimately led to Paul's arrest. And then, uh, so Peter knew that keeping the Mosaic law was not necessary, and Paul reminded him of this fact in, uh, to, in chapter 2, verse 15-16 through 16 that we read. So Peter's understanding of the gospel was correct. The problem was with his behavior, not his teaching, making this totally this entire claim that Paul is undermining the papacy here, making that claim completely irrelevant to the issue of papal infallibility, especially since Peter was not trying to define solemnly a dogma of the faith. Because remember, Peter already defined this back in Acts chapter 15. However, now he's at, now he is uh, acting not in accord with that teaching that he dogmatically defined. So now Paul is calling Peter out to live up to the teaching that he himself taught and dogmatically defined. And you can see that throughout the entire church history. So if a pope's behavior causes scandal, he should be rebuked by someone. In fact, actually, canon law and the catechism and just basic logic and basic understanding of what the church actually teaches would recommend that. So the Pope should 100% be extremely respected, especially when he is teaching ex cathedra. However, when he uh, might, his actions might be uh, causing scandal or confusion and people should be calling them out. 
Um, and then we can even see that like in Catherine of Siena, she rebuked the Pope in her day and she is regarded as a doctor of the church. In fact, it is precisely because Peter back here in Galatians is so important because he is the chief apostle that he provides such a useful illustration for Paul's exposition of the gospel's supreme importance that you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And now I want to clarify something. Uh, I mentioned quite a few titles for what we refer to as the Pope. Um, in the last episode, and one of them was Holy Father. So I wanted to talk about this entire idea of Holy Father, because when I first became Catholic, and uh, before I was Catholic, obviously, especially then, I was so confused. I'm like, what the heck? These people are crazy for calling a human being Holy Father. So to call something holy is to express the idea of consecration, that someone or something belongs to God. That is why the Bible calls many persons, places, and things holy. So in the Gospels themselves, you see John the Baptist is called holy in Mark 6.20. Christ's followers are referred to as holy in multiple times in Ephesians, multiple times in Colossians, and in Hebrews 3.1. And in 1 Peter 1.16, St. Peter says, you shall, be called, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And then in Ephesians 3.5, the apostles are called holy. And the bishops are called to be holy as well, according to Titus 1.8. So it is fitting that the head of his people, of God's people, should be called holy, not because of his own merit, but because Jesus Christ died for him and for the church that uh, he is leading here on earth. So, and uh, why we call, and a a little elaboration uh, even further on why we call priest and particularly the Pope Father, remember Pope is derived from Papa, which means Father, uh, we see in Acts 7-2, Stephen refers to our father Abraham, and in Romans 9-10, Paul speaks of our forefather Isaac. In 1 Corinthians 4, uh, St. Paul says, I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And back in Isaiah 22-21, where we see that uh, in that undeniable parallel between Matthew 16-18, where Jesus gives Peter the keys of the kingdom, and he has the power to bind and to loose, that is referencing back to the steward of the Davidic kingdom back in Isaiah 22:21, where the keys are being passed down, so succession of the papacy or the the passing down of the the authority of stewardship of the kingdom, uh, and it says in Isaiah 22:21, he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. So, if Elikiam, the king of Jerusalem's vicar, was to be Israel's father, how much more so is the Pope, Christ's vicar, the church's father? And then uh, I want to dive into a lot of church fathers. So just right off the top, I want to start with St. Ignatius of Antioch. He referred to the Roman church as the one that teaches other churches and presides and love over them. And St. Ignatius of Antioch, he lived to about 107 to 110 AD, and he was really a second generation removed from St. John. So St. John, he was an apostle of Jesus, and uh, I believe it was St. Polycarp, and then it was St. Ignatius of Antioch. Um, and then in the writings of Pope Clement, who, who is referred to in Philippians, he is the fourth pope. He was the pope in ni- uh, 92 to 99 in the first century. And then Pope Soter in uh, 167 through 174 AD, th- their writings were so popular that they were even read alongside scripture in the early church at mass. 
And so, and then again, in AD 190, Pope St. Victor I excommunicated an entire region of churches for refusing to celebrate Easter on its proper date. Some of his contemporaries, such as St. Irenaeus, thought this was not prudent, but none of them denied that Victor had the authority to do it. Some church fathers, such as St. Cyprian of Carthage, criticized the Pope's decisions, but even Cyprian believed that the Pope could not lead the church astray. He wrote in AD 256 of heretics who dared approach, in quotes, the throne of Peter to whom faithlessness could have no access, or as other translations put it, from whom no error can flow. And then in Clement of Rome, the fourth pope, uh, as we mentioned before, he intervened in a dispute in the church of Corinth, a Greek city west of Athens. He warned those who disobeyed him that they would involve themselves in transgression and in in no small danger. Thus, uh, St. Clement of Rome, the fourth pope, demonstrated his authority over uh, non-Roman Christians. And so he was in Rome, but he was... Uh, demonstrating his authority over non-Roman Christians. And he was the fourth pope that reigned from 92 to 99, right in the first century. Uh, And that was honestly, actually, I believe right around the time that St. John wrote his uh, book of Revelation. And then, uh, so what about Peter being in Rome? Like, why does the papacy sit in Rome, though? Why 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 are they not in Jerusalem? So, Peter concludes his first epistle with a cryptic greeting from Babylon, which was the early church's code word for Rome, chosen because the Romans were persecuting Christians just as the Babylonians had done to the Jews. There is archaeological evidence to provide that Peter was indeed stationed in Rome. Since he carried on the word of the first pope from there, it is quite natural to title his papal successor, successor the Bishop of Rome. And of course, St. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. But not only do the church fathers indicate that Peter was in Rome, but they also indicate that his successors carried out their papacies from Rome as well, thus maintaining the primacy of the office of Bishop of Rome. So now I'm going to list off quite a few quotes, but I'm also going to leave a uh, URL link in the notes below to the church fathers website is... It's, it's a brand new website that came out like probably a month ago, and it's an incredible resource. It has every single doctrine of the faith, basically, um, uh, and you can see what the early church believed about the Eucharist, about the papacy, about church authority, about Mary, about baptism, about everything, about the sacraments. So let's start out with Irenaeus in eighty one eighty nine. He says, The blessed apostles Peter and Paul, having founded and built up the Church of Rome, in Tertullian in year 200, he says, the church, the church of the Romans where Clement Clement was ordained by Peter. So Clement was the fourth pope, Peter the first, obviously. So Peter, he's saying, uh, ordained Clement as a, a bishop in Rome. Uh, little uh, Labyrinth in 211, he says, Victor was the 13th bishop of Rome from Peter. So there he is tracing back lineage from uh, that pope all the way back to Peter himself. Cyprian of Carthage in 253, With a false bishop appointed for themselves by heretics, they dare even to set sail and carry letters from from schismatics and blasphemers to the chair of Peter and to the principal church at Rome, in which sacerdotal unity had its source. uh, Eusebius of Caesarea in 3.12 Paul testifies that Crescens was sent to Gaul, but Linus, whom he mentions in the second epistle of Timothy as his companion at Rome, was Peter's successor and the episcopate of the church there. Clement also, 
who was appointed third bishop of the church at Rome, was, as Paul testifies, his co-laborer and fellow soldier. Uh, Optatus, in 367, he says this, You cannot deny that you are aware that in the city of Rome, the Episcopal chair was given first to Peter, the chair in which Peter sat, the same who was head. That is why he is also called Kephas, rock, of all the apostles, the one chair in which unity is maintained by all. And then uh, Epiphanius of Salamis in 375, he says this, At Rome, the first apostles and bishops were Peter and Paul, then Linus, then, then Cletus, then Clement, the contemporary of Peter and Paul. So he literally just listed off a succession of popes. Pope uh, Damasus in 1st and 382, he says this, The Holy Roman Church has been placed at the forefront not by the conciliar decisions of other churches, but has received the primacy by the evangelic voice of our Lord and Savior. The first see today, therefore, is that of Peter the Apostle, that of the Roman Church. Uh, St. Jerome in 383, and this is the scripture scholar, the patron saint of scripture scholars. So he says this, Pope Stephen was the blessed Peter's 22nd successor in the see of Rome. And then again, we see Augustine in 402. He says this, who has the chair of the Roman church done to you in which Peter sat and in which uh, Anastasius sits today? And then Peter Chrysologus in 449, he says this, We exhort you in every respect, honorable brother, to heed obediently that what has been written by the most blessed Pope of the city of Rome, for blessed Peter who lives of faith to those who seek it. For we, by reason of our pursuit of peace and faith, cannot try cases on the faith without the consent of the Bishop of Rome. So there he is referring back to the Bishop of Rome in order to settle matters of faith. And then not only that, Church Fathers' recognition of St. Peter's papal successor's authority in Rome continues. St. Ignatius of Antioch in 110, he says, writing to church in Rome, You hold the presidency in love, named after Christ and named after the Father. Later he added, I desire only that you have enjoined in your instructions may remain in force. Dionysus of Corinth in 170 says, Today we have observed the Lord's holy day in which we have read your letter, Pope Soter. Wherever we do read it, whenever we do read it, we shall be able to profit thereby, as also we do when we read the earlier letter written to us by Pope Clement. In Aeneas 189, he says, But since it would be too long to enumerate in such a volume as this the succession of all the churches, we shall confound on all those who, in whatever manner, whether through self-satisfaction or in vainglory, or through blindness, Blindness and wicked opinion assemble other than there, than where it is proper by appointing out here the succession of the bishops of the greatest and most ancient church known to all, founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul, that church which has the tradition and the faith which comes down to us after having been announced to men by the apostles. With that church, because of its superior origin, all the churches must agree, that is, all the faithful in the whole world, and it is in her that the faithful everywhere have maintained the apostolic tradition. Cyprian of Carthage in 253, he wrote to Pope Cornelius in Rome, We decided to send and are sending a letter to you from all throughout the province where we are, so that all, all our co- colleagues might give their decided approval and support to you and to your communion, that is, to both the unity and the charity of the Catholic Church. I'll mention this in the next episode again, but St. Ignatius of Antioch and uh, the turn of the first century, he was the one that first used the term 
Catholic to describe an, a, a mark of the church. So, um, and then when you go to Vermilion in 253, he wrote to Pope Stephen, boasts of the place of his episcopate and contends that he holds the succession from Peter on whom the foundations of the church were laid. Stephen announces that, the, that he holds by succession the throne of Peter. Pope Julius uh, I in 341, he says, Are you ignorant that the custom has been to, been to write first to us and then for a just decision to be passed from this place in Rome? What I write about this is for the common good. For what we have heard from the blessed apostle Peter, these things I signify to you. And uh, just a reminder, so far, everything that I've read, we still don't have a canon of scripture. <laughs> these, are all these are all popes or bishops referring to the pope before even we had a canon of scripture or the Bible as we know it today. Then we go to Optatus in 367, still no canon. In the city of Rome, the Episcopal chair was given to first to Peter, the chair in which Peter sat, the same who was head. That is why he is called Cephas, rock, of all the apostles, the one chair in which unity is named by all. Neither do the apostles proceed individually on their own, and anyone who would presume to set up another chair in opposition to the single chair would, by that very fact, be a schismatic and a sinner. Recall then the origins of your chair, those of you who wish to claim for yourselves the title of Holy Church. And then the Council of Constantinople in 381. The bishop of Constantinople shall have the primacy of honor after the bishop of Rome because his city is is New Rome. Pope Damasus and and Pope Damasus the first in thirty two, the Holy Roman Church has been placed at the forefront not by the conciliar decisions of other churches but has received the primacy by the evangelic voice of our Lord and Savior. Synod of Ambrose in three eighty nine. We recognize in the letter of your holiness, Pope Cyrus, the vigilance of the good shepherd. You faithfully watch over the gate of heaven entrusted to you, and with pious care you guard Christ's sheep, sheepfold, you that are worthy to have the Lord's sheep hear and follow you. And St. Jerome to Pope Damasus I in 396, I follow no leader but Christ and join in communion with none but your blessedness, that is, with the chair of Peter. I know that this is the rock on which the church has been built. Whoever eats the lamb outside this house is profane. Anyone who is not in the ark of Noah, which was a prefigurement of the church, will perish when the flood prevails. Later, Jerome added, he that is joined to the chair of Peter is accepted by me. And this is, the again, the patron saint of scripture, scholars, St. Jerome. He says, ignorance of scripture is ignorance of Christ. So just a real quick, cool, uh, um, I guess, another point to Peter is he right here, a church father, is pointing out that the Ark of Noah um, was a prefigurement of Peter's boat. And Peter's boat is a uh, an image for the church. We are all in this boat moving together as pilgrims on this earth, going together as a church to the promised land of heaven. St. Augustine, he says this, There are many other things which most properly can keep me in the Catholic Church's bosom. The succession of priests from the very seed of the Apostle Peter to whom the Lord after his resurrection gave the charge of feeding his sheep up to the present episcopate keeps me here. So St. Augustine is writing this in the either the late 4th century or in the beginning of the 5th century. And then St. Jerome, he again says to Pope Damasus I, again in 376, I think it is my duty to, duty to consult the chair of Peter and to turn to a church whose faith has been praised by Paul, according to Romans 1.8. 
I appeal for spiritual food to the church once I have received the garb of Christ. Away with all that is overweening. Late, let the state of Roman majesty withdraw. My words are spoken to the successor of the fishermen, to the disciples of the cross. As I follow no leader, save Christ. So I communicate with none but your blessedness, that is, with the chair of Peter. For this I know is the rock on which the church is built. Peter Christologist in 449 says, We exhort you in every respect, honorable brother, to heed obediently what has been written by the most blessed Pope of the city of Rome, for blessed Peter, who lives of faith to those who seek it. For we, by reason of our pursuit of peace and faith, cannot try cases on faith without the consent of the Bishop of Rome. So as we have seen from these last two episodes, that the papacy was established by Jesus, was always there for 2,000 years, is well-documented in history, and was never denied uh, the authority of the successors of Peter, and has always been important to maintain unity, which Jesus prayed for in John 17. And this is the office that Jesus founded to be the steward of the Davidic kingdom established on the Son of God, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the King who established a kingdom that stretches from heaven to earth that he said the gates of hell shall not prevail against because Peter, you are Peter and upon this rock I will build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And it is upon that promise of Jesus Christ. It is precisely because I have fallen in love with Jesus and will accept every single word that he tells me that is handed down from revelation and sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That is why another reason why I am Catholic is because the papacy that is a gift from God himself, Jesus. And I'm just praying for you all and have a blessed day.